each day at thisiscommonsense.org, we have a thought, somebody's witty statement, maybe not so witty, maybe profound, maybe obnoxious, but something to hopefully produce some of our own thought. And this week we had two by Ray Bradbury, author of Fahrenheit 451, which apparently is the temperature at which books burn. Everybody knows that. That's what he said. I've never looked it up. My wife told me that. So that is both highly likely to be accurate and it's the right answer, whether it's accurate or not. So here's what he had to say about books. A book is a loaded gun in the house next door. Burn it. Take the shot from the weapon. Breach man's mind. Who knows who might be the target of the well-read man? That's from Fahrenheit 451. And here is another element that gets at the same thing. There is more than one way to burn a book. Hmm. (laughs) Maybe he's talking about modern times. There is more than one way to burn a book. And the world is full of people running about with lit matches. And it seems to me what he gets at here is so much of the impetus to shush up, to censor, is a natural impetus in some regards. You don't like something somebody's saying, hey, shut up. (laughs) But when a society is run, with a lot of people able to tell other people to shut up, it's not good. It's not good. And books will get burned. And is, uh, was it Herman Hesse who, uh, or somebody else who said that where books are burned, people will be burned too, which of course in, uh, in Nazi Germany was the, was the case ultimately. And I also think it's interesting to, to kind of go beyond books. What Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and other social media big tech giants have been doing is their own brand of book burning. And we know this because last weeds, last weeds, I I can't say words, uh, but I'm still a threat to YouTube. (laughs) Even though I can't quite yet say words, I'm a threat to YouTube because last week's podcast was taken down by YouTube. And of course, you found out first I was out lollygagging, doing something. And uh, we found out late Sunday that you had put it up and and, uh, it had come down. And they had a message, which, of course, provided no information and no, no, hey, here is what you said that didn't work. And and here's why it's wrong. And here's the evidence. Because this is, as I understand it, Um, it's even worse if it's something else, but this isn't very good. These are algorithms, you know, pulling different things because of this word or that word. This is not only malevolent motivation, but badly done so that it's, it's also messy and arbitrary and kind of a, a maze where you have no idea 
at the end of the day, what was it something you said, Tim? Was it something I said? I only remember two things that we could have said. Now, I'm sure we said more, but I can only remember two things that were, you know, possibly offensive to them. One of them, you were talking about the masks and the various interpretations of, you know, whether they're worthwhile or not. And I uh, characterized the whole vaccine movement, the universal vaccination movement, as insane. Now, I think mine would offend them more, but there was no fact that possibly could. You're allowed to say somebody's insane or or maybe not, <laughs> you know, but it's but it, it would be a, a slightly better world of censorship and and uh, and silencing people if there were certain known rules about it, if there was some actual policy that made some sense. But the only time that I've really heard YouTube articulate a policy, it was the most insane thing I, imaginable. Early on in the pandemic, the CEO of YouTube, which of course is owned by Google, but the CEO of YouTube came out and said that they would censor anything that disagreed with World Health Organization official policy. And of course, the World Health Organization is such a basket case of, you know, political machinations and, and what do the Chinese want us to say and what do the Americans want us to say. And uh, the idea that somehow a thoughtful, maybe, maybe, maybe that's my mistake, uh, a thoughtful company where people meet in, in wealthy office buildings and nice boardrooms would have this idea that somehow we should just cede everything to the World Health Organization so that basically you can't discuss any medical topic without towing the World Health Organization's line. I mean, that's insane. And that is stated, official. That's what they're doing. Now, they don't do it very well. I guess we can take some small comfort in that. Uh, sometimes when, you know, when you think about the NSA grabbing all this communications, my wife's always saying, well, there's so much they won't know what to do with it. I mean, they're not that competent. But I always feel like when it comes to politics, government can get more competent very quickly. In other words, if you want to use that information to search for individual people who you might want to shut up, well, then that might be more doable. Catching every person who says something. I mean, look, even the Chinese occasionally get to say something against Xi Jinping without, you know, getting arrested and uh, taken downtown. So it's not really possible to police every utterance of every American. But from both knowing now that our government has grabbed up all that information, they did it without authority, and I'm not so sure that they've ever stopped doing it and that they also want to shut us up. In other words, they want to know everything we're saying, but if we don't say the right things, then we, they don't want us talking to anybody else. That's not the American dream. That's not the way the First Amendment was designed. It's not just a dystopian novel by Ray Bradbury. It's, uh, it's last week at thisiscommonsense.org, This Week in Common Sense podcast. And we're a threat. I mean, I guess that's the good news, Tim, is that we are a serious threat to the uh, establishment's hold on the planet. Well, you wrote about that in our authoritarian moment that appeared on Monday. Yes. 
hey, before we get too far on this enterprise, I should say you are listening to This Week in Common Sense starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Vercolo. We are going to cover the big stories of the week. And if we haven't done so so far, we will start now. And I also talked about uh, Byram Brittle. Uh, his name is somehow hard to hard to say, but who basically is a uh, professor of viral immunology and he and the entire department uh, at the University of Guelph. Is that how you pronounce that, Tim? Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty much, much. But I, I pronounce his name, Dr. Bridal, but I don't know how. Uh, what did I say? Brittle. Brittle. Oh, it looks like Bridal to me. I think you're right. I think you're right. Plus, that sounds better to me. <laughs> if, no. if it is brittle, then my apologies. But anyway, I think you're right. But anyway. They're Canadians. So yes. Yeah. Know. Yeah. <laughs> so the interesting thing about him and his whole department there is that he wouldn't give information. He didn't quite say he wasn't vaccinated, but he wasn't going to give him any information to prove that he was vaccinated. And I suspect he's not. But he made the point that they decided to go with the universities. You know, we love vaccine mandates, even with their Department of Virology universally, unanimously opposing it. But of course, they never asked because in following the science, you don't go ask the scientists, you call Washington, or, or in this case, I guess you call Ottawa, or yeah, we are in such a weird, weird place in terms of so much communication, and yet this blanket of just, you know, uh, people being canceled and told what to say and what not to say, and and it's it's not helpful. It's not helpful no matter what your position is on these different matters, it's not helpful to shut up the other side. Sometimes they ask some good questions. Sometimes you switch sides. Sometimes they switch sides, but only if there's, if there's a flow of information, shut it off and, uh, and you're going to get consensus. That consensus throughout history has led to more deaths from disease and more war and more, you know, stagnation because uh, people aren't free. The funny part of this story, and there is, I guess, a slightly funny part of this story. You know, I've been saying that modern progressivism, which dominates the world, basically, uh, certainly the West, is a worship or the dedication to the values and opinions of experts. But here is a case where the progressive expertise they didn't consult the experts in their own university. There was absolutely no interest in doing so. So this really isn't about expertise and it's not about the people who know, like philosopher Kings telling the rest of us what to do. This is a case where a bunch of administrators said, you're gonna do this and we don't care what those guys say. Right. So it's a very interesting moment. Follow the bureaucrats. That'll yeah. be the new slogan, follow the bureaucrats. It's a recipe for disaster. And considering in this pandemic that, you know, you had, I've heard people who blame Trump for 600,000 people dead, blood on his hands and so on. But no doubt there will be plenty of blood on people's hands if we can't discuss things 
years ago, the book, The Wisdom of Crowds. I can't think of who wrote that book. Um, he had a, a strange last name, uh, like Sukiwitsky or something. It, was a, it had a, right? Yeah, I, I, I can't think of it. But just making the point that oftentimes, if a problem is dealt with by thousands, millions of people, that all those different vantage points can can come up with a better answer than experts in that field. We need the free flow of information. And if we think that we can cut that off and have a better world, it's a sad, sad situation, especially because America, we're the, we're the people who brought free speech as a concept to the world. So um, as, a, as a workable concept to the world, because of course you couldn't have it because of the, you know, the unwashed masses would say terrible things uh, against their kings. And we kind of switched that whole dynamic and I'm so glad we did. And now of course there's uh, to switch to Tuesday's piece, there's a, a new kid on the block maybe, if we want to play into all this rivalry, economic rivalry and superpower rivalry between the, the US and China. I don't see it at all that way. I see it as a totalitarian nightmare on the horizon and on the horizon only because we've got the Pacific Ocean between us and, and China. If you happen to live in Taiwan, the uh, free and democratic island nation of 24 million people, if you happen to live in, in uh, Australia, uh, about 26 million people in a much bigger uh, island, you're a little further away, but uh, I think they're awfully glad they're getting some nuclear subs from the U.S. now because they have been threatened and bullied by China and they know what's up. And Tuesday's piece was uh, straight democracy, not straight as in a straight line, but straight as in the Taiwan Strait. And what caused me to to want to write this piece was there has been so much not only bluster and threatening by China, but drills off the coasts of, of uh, Taiwan, getting into the air identification zone. And that's slightly different, uh, as, as Tom Knapp argues uh, in the comments here, it's slightly different than airspace. It's not that China's flying over the island. They've threatened to do that. But they're flying close and they're, you know, and, and when you've got 59 fighters and nuclear capable bombers, you know, approaching your airspace, it's a concern. And so there has been a real concern around the world, but made the nightly news the other day about uh, the possibility of war in the Taiwan Strait. The president of Taiwan made a statement, the foreign minister uh, said, you know, there is concern about going to war. And of course, China has built up massively over the last decade or so, and it's a serious, serious problem. And yet, over the weekend, Xi Jinping gives a speech at the Great Hall of the People, and it's the 110th anniversary of, uh, of throwing off the imperial dynasty and, and kind of a, 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 a supposed republic, wasn't much of a republic, but in China. So... He's celebrating that, and he says that the best way for a reunification of Taiwan and the, and the mainland would be a peaceful one. And so 
the New York Post and the Washington Post, and there were other papers, come out with a headline that says, China vows peaceful reunification with Taiwan. And of course, the way I took that, and the way I think most people take that is, oh, finally, China says, look, we want to reunify, but of course, we're not going to kill you and force you to join us because who would want to reunify with someone who threatens to kill them and their children? And so this only makes perfect sense. And in fact, as screwed up as U.S. policy has been with the, with the different, the Shanghai communique and the Taiwan Relations Act and, and all the different diplomatic BS that we have been giving to Taiwan and to uh, uh, the People's Republic of China, the one thing that makes sense is that the U.S. has always said any re reunification needs to be peaceful, which means persuaded, which means an agreement. And of course, that's what China does not want. I look at where we are to just look big picture for a second, and I encourage you to go. There's a lot of links in this piece, Straight Democracy, because I wanted to give people an opportunity pretty quickly to click some things and see what's happening in the South China Sea and different places. And the fact that, you know, we don't we don't hear every time there's a, a, a dozen Chinese jets flying into the airspace. We only hear it when it gets at a fever pitch, but there's a lot going on there. And it seems to me that we have an opportunity to, for years, it seemed like whatever China wanted, our government wanted to give it to them. And it was just a few years after Tiananmen Square that they're invited into the World Trade Organization and they get most na favored nation status. And it also seems like we have ignored the fact that they are becoming, not, not really becoming because you know, they for years there's been uh, China never attacks anybody outside their country. Well, what the heck is Tibet? And what are they doing in the Uyghur area? They're shipping Han Chinese folks into that area, but that's not that's not traditionally China. And of course, the bottom line to Hong Kong, even, but you know, nobody can really defend Hong Kong against the mainland. It's right there. It's on you know, it's an island, but it's right there. But with Taiwan and with Hong Kong, it's clear that the people there do not want to be part of the totalitarianism. That's not, that isn't exciting them. I think China was very rapidly getting to a point where they felt like they would have the ability to take Taiwan. And really, two years ago, about this time, two years ago, the end of September, beginning of October, I traveled to Hong Kong and to Taiwan and have you know, it just spurred me to be much more interested. I was pretty interested in it before and, and so on. And we did things every year about Tiananmen Square and so on. But that really spurred it on. And in that two years, I feel like the West has awoken a lot. And I get feedback from people saying, well, we've, you know, Biden won't do anything. And the, the West is, you know, uh, not going to stand up and so on. Well, I guess my biggest surprise so far in the Biden administration has been that when it comes to China and Taiwan and that area, the Indo-Pacific, Biden has kept almost every tough policy Trump 
instituted. And really you had, you know, Trump was a, a big break. Before that, I think you had Obama, cool customer, but, but I, think, I don't think he stood in Xi Jinping's way. And Trump did, whether you love him or hate him, or just kind of think, I'm not sure, Trump got in Xi Jinping's way. Trump upset the apple cart of good, friendly U.S.-Chinese genocidal maniac relations. In fact, we did the piece, what, what was it? Something about uh, getting along with genocide. I can't remember what the name of the thing was. It's on the tip of my tongue, but about before Biden took office, somebody was suggesting, here's some ways that we can get along better with China. And I don't think we want to get along so much better with China until China changes. Basically, this tone, you know, the Post and others talked about a little bit different tone last weekend from Xi Jinping. If that's true, my view is it's because he's getting pushback and that the China, there's no diplomacy there's no nice words. They don't want to work with us on climate change. There's no BS foreign policy, you know, thread the needle to make everything happy-go-lucky between free countries and totalitarian genocidal nightmares. And so I worry about upcoming, I mean, Biden, I think, has been very good, but I worry about upcoming, it's a virtual summit. I figured that's safer. You know, you can't get him in a room and, and, and Biden's like a little confused or something and take advantage of him. But uh, I, I just mostly, I worry about that because they're only going to pay attention to one thing and that's strength. And that's what's changed in these last couple of years in my mind. And top of the list, and I may do something on this next week, uh, because it was kind of what, what I obviously didn't get to in the 300 words uh, I, I wrote about this. But here's what's happened in those two years. Australia has stood up. Australia's tiny compared to China. China's its number one trading partner. It's a huge economic issue, obviously. And yet they've been pushing back. And largely because China was trying to do all kinds of things, including half takeover Australian universities, which they've been trying to do the same type of uh, subverting, you know, institutions that they put together at U.S. In, uh, higher education institutions. Japan has realized that if Taiwan is overtaken, that Japan's alone. They got South Korea there. Of course, Koreans and Japanese don't get along that well. Uh but they're, they're kind of cut off and they're alone. And if the U.S. doesn't come to Taiwan's aid, then whoa, why do the Japanese think they're going to come to the Japanese aid? And if, they, and if Japan's not there, well, then the Philippines is going to be bossed around and Vietnam. Little countries like Malaysia are starting to push back against China. Uh, quad countries, India, Australia, U.K., the United States. Uh, Germany sent warships, uh, I should take that back, I think it was one warship, to the South China Sea. The Chinese refused to let them dock in Shanghai. Uh, but Germany, of all people, because Germany's been more buddy-buddy with China trading-wise, 
and much more skeptical that this is a Europe doesn't want to be on the U.S. side. It's like oh, I got to agree with my my big brother or something. Uh, I don't think they see us as, as the big brother. That was a little tongue in cheek, but uh, uh, but they they don't like you know the U.S. is always dictating things, and so they see it as somewhat as a U.S. versus China battle. And the more they see it as a China versus Taiwan, or China versus Vietnam, or China versus the Philippines, or China versus Australia, the more they they have become supportive, and so. I think some very good things are happening in that regard in terms of people standing up to China. And what I mean by standing up is both recognizing the oppressive nature of the Chinazi regime, which is critical, and speaking about it, because you know what? Speech actually does matter. And that has been critical. And that pisses off. I don't know what other way to say that. <laughs> Angers, I guess. But uh my mother never liked me to say pisses off. So right. uh, maybe it yellow rivers them. <laughs> now that's, that is witty and charming there, Mr. Verkula. But, but uh, anyway, it, it makes China very angry when people call them for what they are. Um, so it's very important to speak up about it, but it's also about having a warship. It's also about, you remember, you know, years ago, we used to call the Defense Department the Department of War. And we need to not be silly about, oh, we would never, you know, fire any weapon. If, if we think we're going to, like, you know, peace love the Nazis into submission, we're crazy. And what has, I think, started to wake up Beijing that they may not be able to grab, uh, you know, uh, Taiwan, as I pointed out, kind of like the, the Sudetenland of modern times, uh, is that country after country is set up. It's not just the United States. And that's important. But of course, without the United States, these other countries don't have the firepower, the, the economic might, uh, to, to stand up by themselves. So this is, again, uh, I, I've always been very non-interventionist. I still see this as not interventionist, but I like alliances. I think at this point in human history, we need an alliance in Asia to hold China at bay, or we're going to have a world that is a lot more authoritarian, totalitarian than than I would like. Well, we do have a world that's more authoritarian and totalitarian than I would like already in especially Australia, but also in America. I mean, Biden administration is quite awful uh, and is pushing very totalitarian measures all about COVID. And I just wanted to mention, because we have not mentioned it at all, you realize that there was a Chinese defector, former Communist Party leader, Wei Jingzheng, who three weeks ago said that the virus, the coronavirus, was deliberately released during the uh, world, no, it was deliberately released. The World Military Games. World Military Games in October 2019. Now, hasn't he said that previously, though? Was that the first? Somebody has said that. Well, China, for one, has said that the U.S., 
you know, used it as a bioweapon then. Of course, they didn't they didn't make that charge until people started pointing fingers at them that they had done it. Then they said, oh, no, 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 the U.S. did it as a bioweapon. But, um, you know, we may we may never know, but it is interesting. You have been uh, from the beginning unwilling to foreclose that possibility. And and I don't um, I don't feel like I've foreclosed that possibility because I certainly recognize that's possible, but but you have spoken to this several times as we've talked during different scripts and so on. You've said, you know, everybody just you know, oh, it could be a lab leak, but of course it couldn't be a bioweapon, and that's just silly. Um, it's it's a little bit like uh, and and we should we should keep talking about this for a minute uh, because there's more there, but it's a little bit like the next script, low fare, something to hide where I think everybody recognizes that Southwest is canceling a bunch of flights and that at least one of the factors is they have a vaccine mandate and that the pilots union doesn't like that. And in fact, the pilots union went to court to go after that. And, and so there's, there's other aspects of it. In the same way, I guess I'm making the analogy that from the very beginning, first, you couldn't call it a lab leak. Oh, that was a conspiracy theory. How could anyone suggest that? Then more and more people say, well, there's some evidence for it. And there's zero evidence thus far of a zoonotic uh, origin. And, and, you know, and, and, but even then, but of course, we're not saying it's a bioweapon. Because interestingly enough, when Tom Cotton, who's a, a U.S. senator from Arkansas, first mentioned the lab leak, everyone jumped on him for saying it was a bioweapon. And he said, hey, he said, I said, no such thing. I never even even halfway alluded to any such thing, which, again, it's kind of like when, when you suggest something and someone says, well, it's not this. And you never suggested that you kind of wonder, do you think it is that? Is that why you had an immediate defensive reaction? So, well, I think that is exactly what it is, is that people are afraid of war and they're cowards. Now, I'm not saying I'm for war. I hate war. And I think it would be very awful if we were at war with China. I mean, I think it might be the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the world if we went to war with China. I mean, I'm not saying it would be good at all, but I don't think we should preclude thought that we should not consider the fact that we may have been, or consider the possibility that we may have been attacked. The world may have been attacked. Uh, it means a possibility. Now, I know that there are reasons why people wouldn't believe that. Uh, and I've explained before why I don't think those reasons are true. Uh, in fact, I don't think they're at all valid, but that's beside the point. We don't know, but I think people would have a different attitude towards the current contagion if they realized it was an act of war. Even if we could do nothing about it, they would yes. realize that the the thing not to do would be to give up and stop producing goods and make your country weaker and make yourselves weaker. What we've done right. basically is bent down or lean back and bared our necks so that the big dog can uh, bite our neck. It it is. It would get our dander up, and that's a good thing here. I think you're very right there. The other thing it would do is to prevent the normalizing of China. And I'm talking about the Chinese government. I'm not talking about the Chinese people. 
Chinese people are like people everywhere. They'd like to be freer than they are. And, uh, uh, but, but to normalize them, I read stories all the time where they go through the lab stuff, the lab leak, and they will tell us that there was this group that went and investigated it in China, uh, but it wasn't conclusive, this or that. Well, that's a lie. They didn't go investigate it in China. No, they did not. And it's, I mean, you can look at what they did while they were there and there was no investigation. So when stories run again and again and again and again that say there was, that's a problem. Some of these stories refer to the Lancet piece, which was written by someone saying, I have no involvement in this, who literally took the money from the NIH and gave. So it's, it's when the media reports these things, it reminds me. And I think it's this is a less damaging thing in some ways because there have been all kinds of police shootings, but it reminds me of reading after after realizing that um, oh Michael Brown uh, in Ferguson that both investigations into that found Brown was the aggressor. It was and and basically you know said the policemen should face no charges. Um, he was the victim, not the, the victimizer. Um, but you know, every time you read that in the paper, Michael Brown is an unarmed black man killed by police. And that is true, but it's not the whole story. And it's misleading. And when you repeat over and over again that there was this investigation, but it didn't, wasn't conclusive, and there was this letter and this prestigious publication that said this is just all a conspiracy thing. If you don't know the background of those, well, then you're going to treat them as if they're real events. And I mean, with a media who wants to be completely partisan because they don't like the person who's the Republican and who keeps telling us that they have to give us the context and they have to tell us all about stuff. How do you report these things and not give the context? And when you've reported them for a year, which the Washington Post, New York Times, others have reported all about this for a year, Facebook has censored things, not letting people talk about it. And then when it all comes out that you were full of it, you don't have the decency to start changing the way you're talking about the story. The story a week later is still talking about this Lancet letter and is still talking about the, the joint China who international investigation. It's, it is mind numbing and it, it's scary. In full honesty, I have to mention that I also don't uh, rule out of court the possibility that it was leaked by the the uh, Fauci people. That the reason it was leaked was for the reasons they'd suggested before, is that they needed to have a, an excuse to set up their bizarre new uh, antiviral uh, vaccines. I mean, there, there's, there's plenty of evidence that they were working that direction. Uh, it's, it's very peculiar. And so I think we should consider the possibility that this was an American thing, not an American government thing from the top, but a cabal, a conspiracy. And, and there's evidence for it. There is circumstantial evidence for it. 
circumcision and largely that Fauci was getting all kinds of pressure from people to be anti-lab leak. And that I think opens this whole thing up that it, it also, this is something people should be aware of. So often when I've said different things about China, I'm arguing with somebody is, oh, you're, you know, this is all a U.S. versus China thing. And as if kind of I'm a flag waving, you know, beer drinking U.S., love it or leave it, screw the Chinese if they mess with us. The reality, one, that's not me. Uh, although sometimes beer can be good. Uh, you're more of a Starbucks man. Yes, that's true. Uh, I'd like to be. Uh, I like to be caffeinated, but um, the the reality. Now I'm going to lose my train of thought here and all the different silliness. But um, where where am I going here? What's my name? I'm out of ammo. We were talking talking about about Fauci and the uh, and the. Oh oh. This is not a American establishment good. Chinese establishment bad because America good, China bad. American establishment is rotten to the core. Chinese establishment, Chinazis are rotten to the core. In fact, rotten to the core with a practiced evilness that is that even is, is beyond because they're committing genocide right now in Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang. And, and, and so there's things going on that are pretty ugly, but I, I mean, if you, the, the, the thing that's so surprising, if you look at the different communications is how tight Fauci and, and Dazag and Dazag and, and others are with the Chinese scientists and how we're all working on this together. And of course, I think, I think our government left to their own devices would get along with with China. They get along with you know if Idi Amin were still uh, in Uganda, they'd probably be able to make deals with him. There's there is a connection here that's that's a little bit disconcerting, and and so it's not a our country versus their country. It is in my mind much more of there are free countries with free people who are able to speak out, we have to connect with each other and not allow our governments to screw it all up because we're the only hope, not the only hope, but we are one big hope for the people who don't live in free countries to maybe someday have an opportunity to be free and not have the forces of China or Russia or others clamp down on them in the same way that I want countries to be free to not have the U.S. clamp down on them. This is not a, you know, my, my view is that, boy, the U.S. is doing good everywhere that we run around and, and uh, get in some scruff with somebody. We're not. But I think we could do good, and we have done good. Uh, you know, World War II is not a bad thing. Um, was not a bad thing what the U.S. did. And, and we've done other good things. So if we weren't, tra- you know, traveling through the Taiwan Strait, on a regular basis, and this goes back to the 1990s and, and even before, there probably would have been an invasion and 24 million people in Taiwan uh, brought into totalitarianism. That's not a good outcome. And so, um, but, it's, but this is not, this isn't a rah-rah our team versus their team. 
this is, is I think you, we can see in all of these, in Europe, in the US, in Asia, all over the globe, that the folks in power have a technological leverage that is scary. And when you're willing to be as totalitarian and vicious and genocidal as the Chinese, that has a whole new zeal to the frighteningness of it. Um, but that doesn't excuse the fact that the U.S. government uh, broke all of, you know, violated all of our rights to grab every email we'd ever sent, every bank transaction we'd ever made. You know, so so this is this is not American government versus Chinese government. This is the people versus the politicians. And some of the politicians are even more frightening and dangerous and evil than others. Well, I think we can all agree with that. Now, you've already mentioned low fares, something to hide from Wednesday. Yes. And you even briefly described it. So Technically, we could just say that's a pretty good piece and you could move on to the next piece. I think that would be a... I think that's the way to go. And I think people should go to thisiscommonsense.org and read Low Fares, Something to Hide. Um, and uh, it, was a fun, it was a fun piece to, uh, uh, I, think, I think, too. Uh, I, I, guess, I guess that's kind of like, that's kind of like, to, for me to call it a fun piece is kind of like, yeah, years ago, my daughter, my youngest, and I uh, were traveling somewhere together, and we both made, this is back in the day of uh, compact discs, and uh, we both made CDs, you know, mixtapes, and, uh, and when we would play them, you know, one of the songs would come and go, oh, that's a great song. And of course, it was. We put the song on the CD. I mean, so we're, we're basically saying, boy, I'm great. Boy, I have wonderful taste. And we, uh, we did it so often, kind of without being able to catch ourselves that it became a running joke about how much we loved our own taste in music. But so, so anyway, I love my taste in, in writing too, I guess, but the uh, uh, another piece that we did this week that I think is worth uh, taking a look at folks is burning down the house. And uh, here in Virginia, we have a governor's election this year and Virginia used to be a pretty red state. Uh, it's become a pretty blue state. Uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe, who used to be governor in, in Virginia, it's one term and then you're out. So it's a one term limit, but you can come back. So he was governor uh, four years ago, stepped down, had to because the term limits, then another Democrat's in there. And now he's trying to come back. And uh, Glenn Youngkins is the Republican. And most of what I see is nasty, vicious ads against Youngkin. But they're right neck and neck in the polls. Republicans seem to be more energized. But what may turn that race, which would generally, most cases, go to the Democrat, is that at a recent debate, Terry McAuliffe, they were talking about some of the controversies over uh, critical race theory being taught in schools and different things like that. And uh, uh, Terry McAuliffe said, quote, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And that has been in ads and, and uh, been all over the airwaves. And it's, it, it is 
in essence, the way this new progressive, let's go with expertise, follow the science, follow the bureaucrats, follow the experts, do what politicians tell you or what the people that they hired tell you. And, um, and, and yet it sounds to me so bizarre and apparently it does to a lot of other parents, both with uh, the polling shows, uh, parents with kids in the schools don't like that statement and people with no kids in the schools don't like that statement. But that, that is the way they view it. Well, what are parents doing? We've got experts. We've got experts. They'll tell you what your kid needs to learn and what you need to say when they get home and, and how to file your taxes and how to shut up. Uh, so you've written several times about Loudoun County and uh, that's in the news. That's a, one of your, was it a North yes. Western County in Virginia? It's a Western. It's, it's kind of straight West. It's Northern Virginia, but it's straight West from DC. I'm kind of straight South and it's, it's straight West. So, uh, but it's 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 close, you know. Uh, it's a rock throw, maybe a hundred rock throws. It's gotten a number of uh, big stories in the last several months. Matt Walsh went there and protested and gave his opinions on, uh, I think it was CRT and things like that. But right now, it's even worse. They had the one teacher who spoke up at a at a school board meeting on pronouns and and on on transgender issues and so on and that became he was basically uh put on leave and was about to be fired took his case all the way to the state supreme court and won it uh that they had no right to, you know I mean, he's free to say what he wants to say at a board meeting i mean that the idea that someone could lose their job because they spoke out publicly on a political issue is uh is not good uh, and, and it's, again, it's coming from the left. I mean, this is, you know, you go back to the sixties and I guess I date myself and I was a little bitty kid. Uh, but, but, you know, it was the left saying that we have to have free speech. And now it's the left saying, you know, we can't have free speech because people might not say the right thing. And, and so there has been a lot of controversy on all kinds of issues but I think the uh, I, I think the, the biggest has been the, the critical race theory, which is really when, when in this podcast and generally, I think when people are talking about that, they're less talking about the technical academic theory and really talking about this whole concept of race should be everything. And being anti-racist means you have to be a racist. You have to judge everything by race. You have to dislike people or like them according to their race. You have to judge them, at least, according to the color of their skin. And you have to, if you're white, you have to be apologetic always. You can never be unashamed to be white. I mean, that is one of the parts of this whole thing, and I find it just kind of creepy. But right now what's going on in Loudoun is, is that it's the case of rape uh, going on uh, in, a, in a gender-free bathroom. So that's a huge issue. I have not. I have not heard that. It's, it's appalling. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the facts of the matter that well, but it's. I've, I've you know I've heard people talk about it. A boy dressed in a in a as a girl, basically sexually molested a girl in the girls' bathroom in Loudoun County. In Loudoun County. Wow. Boy, I've been busy this week. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it, it's it's kind of funny because. 
usually most of the local news I will get will be, you know, the, the post doesn't cover much. I mean, it's, it's a huge metro area and there's a little bitty metro section, but they, I would have to imagine they would cover something like this, although it's the post, maybe not. Um, but usually you'd hear it, I'd hear it about, you know, at the 11 o'clock news or something, but I have not heard anything about that. You know, that's probably not how to judge the whole policy from, from one instance, but it's, it strikes me that, that the whole issue Anarchy for bathrooms, which was the policy before. I don't know that there's ever been a bathroom policy, uh, you know, kind of a universal national bathroom policy. And it seemed to work just fine. I never, I've never heard of anyone having a problem. I mean, I'm sure there have been problems. You go into, you know, certain, certain bathrooms in the wrong place. But, uh, but for the most part, it's been in schools and other places uh, not much problem. And, and it does seem like there's a goal to make it a, a problem. When I was a kid, and that would be when you were a kid too, uh, there was no explicit policy, but if a boy went into the girl's bathroom, he would be ejected pretty fast. The principal would be there. I mean, there's no question what the policy was in a sense, right. right. if not de jure. So. Yes. But usually if, if, um, if someone went into the girl's bathroom who looked like they were a girl and went to the bathroom and then left without bothering anyone, they might've gotten away with it just fine. So Right. That, it often depends on with, with these trans issues, just how the uh, trans person behaves or looks. Frankly, an unsuccessful trans person is going to get in a lot, make people a lot more comfortable, uncomfortable than a successful one. We know what we're talking about, don't we? Uh, so if a woman with a beard <laughs> and a paunch and and whips out parts of his anatomy, her anatomy, that would be considered a pretty pretty uh, grotesque yeah. situation. And yeah. almost anywhere. And there was that case in uh, California somewhere at a uh, spa a few months ago where uh, that was an issue, where a man saying he was trans was exposing himself in the women's locker room. And that got... That got a lot of play. And frankly, I can see why. I don't really want to, you know, it'd be very weird, but of course it never happens. Women don't go into men's bathrooms pretending to be men and then whip out, you know, their breasts or anything. This doesn't happen. No, no, it doesn't. And I always like to, like for there not to be any story involved. Like if I go to a public restroom and then leave, no story involved. No story later. Oh, you know what happened to me? Uh, that's not, you don't want that. And I yeah, think that's a really good point there. I know people who just prefer to go to the bathroom when they get back home. Yeah. The only <laughs> story I, I want to tell. Grow, I think that's going to grow exponentially, but. The only story I usually tell about a public restroom is a, how clean it is or b what's written on the walls. Sometimes the latter can be funny in a grotesque and disgusting way, but it, it can be funny. Anyway, all right. I think I think we should leave this important subject. And uh, so, what was our Friday piece about? Well, you had two friends who passed away. Yes, it was. Yes, boy, these two gentlemen. And I encourage you to go see the piece. There's links to their obituaries and more information about what they did. And uh, the, the two people are Ron Neff, who died a few weeks ago, uh, had been ill for a while. 
72 years old. And, uh, and Mike Ravel, who died back in June, was 91 and um, a former U.S. senator. And, you know, as, as well known, Ron Neff's not a household name, obviously. Senator Gravel's not exactly a household name, but is famous because he uh, read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record in 1971 as a way to get the Pentagon Papers into the public domain. Something about more information would be better. And of course, those Pentagon Papers were taken against the law. But once they're out and people have them who didn't rob them from someone, it is public information. And, you know, society went through a, a debate about that. It, New York Times was taken to court, so on and so on. But a guy who had some courage also filibustered against the draft, being an opponent of the draft, you know, that that uh, made a difference to me. And and uh, Gravel was also a, a fan of term limits. And I met him when I was running U.S. term limits. But we met because I went to an event about getting the initiative process at the national level, at the state level, everywhere, all, all 50 states, not just the 26 that have some level of either initiative or referendum or both. And he really, he, he loved the idea of citizens being legislators, of, of taking this special sacred art that only the elite and the privileged few can handle and allowing the public to do it. I'm sure it was scary to some people in that way. It was refreshing to me in that it was someone who had been in public office in Washington, the level of the most shocking thing to me when I got to Washington was the level of disdain that politicians and their staff had for the American people, that they were unwashed, stupid masses. What do they know? We're the elite. We decide everything. And here was Mike Ravel, who had respect for the people, real respect. It was very inspiring to me. It was as I was you know, realizing how important initiative and referendum was, and he was able to kind of open my eyes to, you know, this should be everywhere. And so it was, a, it was a neat relationship and someone I'm very, very glad I met. The interesting thing is that the connection between both Mike Ravel and Ron Neff is the draft issue in a sense. And Ron Neff was much more of a libertarian anarchist, basically a very Christian fellow who wanted to live his life without aggressing against anybody and kind of wanted everyone else to do the same. And uh, very intelligent, thoughtful, great editor. He had, uh, for a long time, was the managing editor of uh, Joseph Brand's uh, newsletter. But I got to know Ron Neff before I ever met him. I had refused to register for the draft. I was sitting in a jail cell in Segoville, Texas, in a federal correctional institution. Uh, never was quite officially corrected, but... I was in the institution and my wife tells me that the car has gone kaput. You know, we weren't the multi-billionaires then that we are today, 
So that was kind of a concern would be today too. So it was like, oh my goodness, I'm six hours away. My daughter, my wife, you know, are they going to be able to visit? How does this work? Oh my goodness. And, you know, next time I talked to my wife, she mentions that she got a letter in the mail. This letter had said that it was a gift, not to the defense fund. I had a defense fund to help pay the attorneys, but that it was a gift to our family to help, you know, cover costs that, you know, I wasn't going to be around to help cover. And, uh, Turned out that the amount she ended up getting a car and the monthly payment, the amount that they had sent was literally within cents of the of the amount because they tied. They took exactly 10 percent. It was you know a check for something. And and there were cents on that on that check. They were serious about the 10 percent. Years after that, moving to Washington, I lived in Arkansas at the time. Uh, I got to know Ron Neff and we'd go to the Brick Skeller, which is this great place that had years from all over the world and and really uh, a dear friend wonderful person so great to know him but my goodness uh to get to know someone who that's the first thing you know about them is that they step up like that when you need them not because he knew me and he was my best buddy he'd never met me didn't know a thing about me other than what i had done and that i was in trouble and uh, and so a few weeks ago, when I found out that that Ron had passed, it was, uh, you know, it was wow. That's that's somebody who I'll never forget. Well, that is the week on that somber note, uh, wonderful note, because uh, two wonderful men who, who did important things, which is is a blessing for us all. But. Somber too, because uh, you hate to see him go. And uh, and we'll be back next week if we're still here, and uh, and if uh, if uh, YouTube and uh, now we are we we should have said I should I I told myself to say this at the beginning, but that of course we're on SoundCloud. So the fact that YouTube, you know, didn't let people see the video. We still are on uh, some other platforms uh, and the audio is on SoundCloud and SoundCloud doesn't go through all the trouble of arbitrarily censoring their audio files, which is nice. The last episode was video on Rumble and your account is This Week in Common Sense and you are there and people might go on Rumble and subscribe and yes. maybe actually watch the video. And this this one here will all be on Rumble too. I don't see why not switch to it. Because Absolutely. frankly, YouTube is we might as well keep that account for as long as we can, but we're not gonna do it if we keep on talking about China and the Wuhan flu. So uh right. this one probably right. is the reason to even put it up. Yeah, everything we want to talk about, they don't like. They don't like anyone talking about the vaccine or the or mass. They don't like anyone talking about Wuhan and the lab leak. They don't like anyone talking about the Chinazis uh, in power in Beijing. So it's, you know, those are, you know, some of our favorite subjects. There we go. So rumble it is this week in Common Sense. Thank you, Tim. And thanks, everyone. Very good. So you can catch the rumble videos and the SoundCloud audios from thisiscommonsense.org. The links are there. It's where you should always go. 
This is commonsense.org. And of course, the podcast, audio podcast, is available from your favorite podcatcher. Thank you.